Windsor, Windsor Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham Henley, Henley Reading, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The Voice River Radio of the Thames Valley Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio We'll be celebrating the Queen's Jubilee and chatting to Tilly about her latest book choice. Hello, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? I am very well, thank you, Heather. And how are you? What have you been up to? <laughs> no, I'm very well too. Well, I've just come back from a little holiday. Mm, I know you have. Yes, you went. We went to the Far East. We went mm-hmm. to to Ipswich, and um, yep. yes, can't get much further east than that. And I would like to say that we found this fabulous bookshop. So I want to give a big shout out to Dial Lane Books in uh, the centre of Ipswich Town. So if anyone is going there, you must visit this lovely bookshop. This gentleman who owns it, name is Andrew, really lovely guy. And he's always had an ambition to own a bookshop. And he opened his bookshop 21 days before lockdown happened. Oh, no. Oh, and you're just your heart just bleeds for oh. him. So, you know, been waiting sort of 25 years for something. And then when it comes along, it's sort of, ah. Anyway. It's closed. It's closed, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was a really cool shop. He had all these sort of old, you know, the orange penguin books, the old penguin books. Oh, yes. So he had all of those sort of flying like birds across the, um, oh, right. across the ceiling of the bookshop. He had the most amazing bookshop window normally bookshops have um try and cram lots of different types of books in their window and he just committed to one one book and it just it was just very stylish very cool he had a great selection of books and of course we bought lots from him so uh that was so that's what i've been doing julia good excellent <laughs> what about yourself <laughs> oh well just pootling along you know pootling along <laughs> well you're listening to turning pages and every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favorite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. As always, we've got a fun-filled hour designed for you this week. We'll be chatting to Tilly Brogan in her latest instalment of Tilly's Fiction Addiction as she'll be recommending This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay. Yes, and indeed, we've got a special treat for you all. Well, I hope we, uh, you think it's a special treat. And of course, it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this week. And we'll be celebrating this with a selection of queenly titles to recommend. Absolutely. How could we not talk about the Jubilee? And we've, so we've got a fabulous poem about the Queen from our faithful subject, the casual poet, Acker Mike Burton. Mm. Um, but to start us off, as always, um, we've been scouring the papers, you and I, Heather, to spot interesting uh, uh, tidbits of news about books for you. And so I'm going to kick off this week um, with the roundup because it, it's a, an article I, I found, which is a, a, another piece about the gold exhibition, which you, you talked about last oh, week, yes, Heather. Oh, yes, yeah. The one in the uh, British Library. This, 
Yes, indeed. And this one, this this little article um, uh, gives a little bit inf- more information about the Girdle Book. Now, the tiny golden book, which is called the Girdle Book, which is on display at the British Library as part of the exhibition, and it's the first time that it's it's been on display for um, the past six years. Now, it, it is quite small, and it's got solid gold covers, uh, and it contains a portrait of Queen Elizabeth's uh, ancestor, Henry VIII, along with 13 Psalms. Now, the book was designed to be worn around a woman's girdle, hence the name Girdle Book. And it's only one of three English girdle books to have survived to the present day. And the other two are in, appropriate enough, I think, in the Victorian Albert collection. Um, Now, to remind you, um, the exhibition is currently on at the British Library and it will run until um, the 2nd of October. And I think a fitting tribute to our Queen. Absolutely. And I think this book was owned by Anne Boleyn, wasn't it? I think it was, yes. Yeah, so it that's was. quite lovely that it was a yes. picture of Henry VIII that she had yes. in the, yeah, inside. So I spotted a really interesting book, which is the very first English language cookery book on chocolate. And it was seen as a sort of like as a medicinal thing. So it hails its ability to treat melancholy, constipation and venereal disease. And it's about to be sold. The book is called The Indian Nectar or a Discourse Concerning Chocolate. And it was written by Henry Stibbs, who was Charles I's personal doctor in 1662. Um, so it lists recipes and their medicinal benefits and it's based on the writing of Spanish travellers who'd returned from South America. Now for decades this book was kept at the Signet Library in Edinburgh and was sold into private hands in the 1980s. Mm. Mm. So there is evidence that chocolate was consumed in the Amazon as long ago as 5,000 years ago and was introduced into Europe by uh, Spanish colonists in about the 1500s. But only the most privileged in society were able to sample it. And by the time 1662 comes along in the 17th century, when this book was written, chocolate was still a far cry from the confectionery of today. And it was usually prepared as a bitter drink and flavoured with spices yes that yes I, I i remember reading about that and yes it was it was it was consumed as as a drink yes and it was spicy and uh just getting a little bit further afield yes. um from marlow anybody um who is going to paris um i have a little tip for you oh, cool. um on the rue de rivoli there's a, a salon de thé called angeline's and at angeline's they still make their hot chocolate by melting chocolate bars Oh, wow. Oh, it's luxurious, I can tell you. <laughs> and, and I don't think there's a low-calorie version either. <laughs> but when you're on holiday, <laughs> calories don't count. <laughs> that's true, that's true. They get left at the airport or, do, or at the yes. train station. Now, my other little uh, snippet of information, um, which is uh, which I hope people take up on, the National Archive is promoting um, a three-for-two on Shire Books, um, which you get through the National Archive online bookshop. Now, Shire publishing produces those small non-fiction books that you will have seen in museums and gallery um, shops and they're packed full of a really interesting history in fact and then they're, they're always usually in, in full colour as well. And they're on a variety of subjects. I mean, literally anything from allotments to Bletchley Park, to department stores, to football, to trains, to stations. And Shire Books um, have 
basically <laughs> any subject you can think of, Shower Books has actually produced they, it. And they're, they're really great, good. They're I, great, I, actually, aren't they? They are. Yeah. I've got a great collection of them. Yeah. They're really informative. Um, now, and they're all written by, by leading historians. Um, now, this is something for everyone, so you, you can benefit. So all you've got to do is go onto the um, N- N- National Archives website for the shop. And it is the website is shop dot nationalarchives.gov.uk and go and treat yourself that's a very good tip thank you now i spotted uh, a copy of ulysses by james joyce is on the market on sale and the estimate is 30 to fifty thousand pounds now whilst that sounds a lot that's actually quite a bargain for a copy of ulysses and this one is because it's been savaged um all the sex scenes have been ripped out of the book so Ulysses is recognised as sort of one of the 20th century's most influential works of art. And this copy belongs to just one of over a dozen review copies that were printed in Paris in 1922, because no no other publisher uh, would accept to publish it because of its notoriety and uh, because of all this sort of fantasising between Molly and Leopold Bloom. So the story goes that this edition was sent to the editor of a magazine called London Mercury. And he started reading it and he was horrified so much at the story, at the sort of scenes in the story, that he started ripping out the pages, including all these fantasies. Anyway, it was it's a big book, it's a thousand pages. So he decided that that was far, you know, too, too big a job for him. So he gave it to his secretary to burn the book on the fire. But of course, it was too big to go on the fire and burn. So the secretary just put it on the bookshelf, sort of hidden in plain sight. Years later, it was found by a deputy editor and he took it home with him. And now the family have decided to put it on sale and they're hoping that that £50,000 sale figure will be achieved despite uh, much of the text missing. So if it had been complete and well-preserved, copies of the original print now sell for over £275,000. Well, that was the price of the last one sold but that was 10 years ago Ooh, so that could gosh. well have gone up by now yes indeed indeed i mean i must admit i do you think it was mary whitehouse who was the managing director <laughs> at the time you know there with the tearing all the naughty bits out i've got to say that my <laughs> grandmother used to when we used to she used to come over the weekend <laughs> and we'd all go off to church and leave her behind reading the sunday papers <laughs> and when she'd get back she'd rip out all the women in bathing suits out of the Sunday magazine. <laughs> so my father would have this, you know, to go to the paper and they'd have all these holes Hold. in it. <laughs> he used to be very annoyed at that. <laughs> oh, dear. That's very good. I, yeah, I think that's excellent. <laughs> Sorry, now, Nan. <laughs> yes. Now, talking about burning books, um, uh, this will come as a surprise because Margaret Atwood has attempted to burn a copy of her own novel, The Handmaid's Tale. However, it was a fireproof copy. Um, and she was there. I've seen a picture of her. She's got a flamethrower and she's going at it uh, with great guns. And it was a specially commissioned book that has white heat shield foil pages 
uh, and I'm not quite sure what a phenolic hardcover is, but it's got that as well. Stainless steel head and tail bands, and it is sewn with nickel wire. Now, it was created as a symbol um, of the fight against censorship, and it's being auctioned uh, in aid of PEN America, the free speech charity, and I think that's a very worthy cause because there's so much now um, being censored. I read the other day... um, uh, David is it David Horowitz, um, the the author. Um, he he said that he was obliged by his oh, author, John Horowitz. Uh, yeah. John Horowitz, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, recently was was made by his publisher to rewrite one of his children's books because they thought certain things might offend yes. readers. Yeah. So I think this is really good. And Margaret, uh, hats off to you. You've got to stand up against it. Yeah. Now we've just had the nibbies, which are the. Um, Awards by the uh, the book industry and England and Manchester United footballer Marcus Rashford has claimed Book of the Year for his non-fiction debut, You Are a Champion. So we have mentioned this book before. This inspirational guide for young people was chosen from the 12 individual category winners of the Nibbies by a panel of judges headed by Gabby Logan. And the book advises how to achieve your potential and succeed and was written with um, journalist Carl Anker supporting Marcus Rashford in that. So that's a very good cause. It is indeed. Now, I've, I've got this piece here, which is um, um, sad uh, news um, uh, because Dervia Murphy, the Irish travel writer, has died. However, um, she did uh, reach the ripe old age of 90. Now, she set out from Dublin on a bicycle called Ross in 1963 and wrote um, her memoirs, which is called Full Tilt, Ireland to India with a Bicycle, based on her diaries when she went out there. And, it, and it, the accounts uh, of her journey to Delhi um, on this bicycle via Yugoslavia, uh, Iran and Afghanistan, and where she eventually lands up in, in Delhi. Uh, and it was a publishing, uh, publishing sensation when it came out and inspired a slew of, of imitators. Now, Full Tilt was the first of, of, I think she wrote two dozen books in which she drew on uh, more than five decades of, um, of exploring um, some of the most remote and unhospitable parts of the world, um, um, most often um, by bike or on foot and usually alone. Um, incredible um, adventurous. Um, and it was the details of the disasters and difficulties um, she encountered that made for addictive reading. And she battled treacherous, uh, treacherous black ice in the mountains of Eastern Europe, winds that blew her off a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. And a debilitating dust storm in Pakistan. And, and she was nothing if not resourceful on the freezing and the freezing baboon. <laughs> Babusa Pass in Pakistan. She was she was forced to tie herself to a cow to get across the raging nullah, and a nullah is a is a gully. Um, and during her travels, um, she she became a firm believer in the trustworthiness of most human beings. Though her manner could at times be quite reticent, and I think this is a this is a lovely a lovely thing. Her first publisher compared the experience of interviewing her as trying to open an oyster with a wet bus ticket. 
And anyone who's tried to open an oyster will realise. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> how difficult that is. Oh. Oh, brilliant. This is Turning Pages on River Radio because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. Coming up, we'll be looking at the Jubilee in books. Of course we will. But first, I've been chatting with Tilly Brogan in her occasional series, Tilly's Fiction Addiction. So let's hear our chat. Oh, something's gone wrong with that. Let's try to recommend to us this week. This week, I wanted to talk about This is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. So this is a great book. I've read it and an interesting one for you to choose. Very different from your normal sort. Yeah, that's right. It is very different. And I was so shocked with how much I enjoyed it. But yeah, that's why I want to talk about it because it is so different to what, okay. I, what I usually read in this year. But I had to bring it up and had to chat to you guys about it. No, that's great. So how did you discover that? I had heard of the book before. Obviously, it's been out for a few years now. Quite a lot of my friends and family have read it. And I just sort of never picked it up. And then I watched the BBC um, adaptation recently oh, and I just loved it. And I was obsessed and I was like, I have to read the book. And it took me about three days to read it all. It was honestly insane. I could not put it down. Brilliant. OK, describe the book in a sentence. It's a series of short diary entries from a junior doctor about the realities of working in the NHS. Sort of diary entries that will make you cry with laughter, then with tears, and make you realise just how lucky we are to have the National Health Service. Yeah. And it's very current, of course, isn't it, with COVID? It is. It is. So you really appreciate doctors and the whole of the NHS, really. Um, So that's the overall arching idea of the book. So tell me a little bit more about the storyline. So follows a former doctor, Adam Kay, and he was training between 2004 and 2010. And during that time, he would write short diary entries. And he actually isn't a doctor anymore. He resigned and he found all his old entries when he was going through his stuff. He decided to publish them. So he worked on the OBS in Guiney Ward. So the book covers what happens there, including anecdotes about standout patients sort of like the politics of the NHS and the underfunding. Obviously, at that time, it was a different government. So it's really interesting to compare then and now and how it's still very underfunded. And why after six years as training as a doctor that he decided to quit and what that, you know, the realities of that and leading up to it, the consequences after as well. Because he he has a trauma, doesn't he? Well, that's one of the final anecdotes is um, it's all going well. And then he just randomly puts this in. And then that's the, well, no no spoilers, but that's the, it's interesting to see what the thing was that tips him over the edge. What is it about the book that particularly appeals to you? My mum is in the NHS and I've got quite a few family members in the NHS as well. So I knew about the realities of like a hospital environment and the current state of the NHS. Um, especially through the COVID crisis, but it was interesting to read it from another angle and read it sort of like on the front line. It was really, really funny. It's definitely a laugh out loud book, but it also covers some really dark topics and some medical situations that I think should definitely be spoken about. And it's interesting because it is obs and gynae that you get the mixture between women's issues and then also childbirth. And it's just, it covers a lot of things that I think we should be speaking about. But yeah, it's also funny as well. It's like a really nice mix between the two. Sometimes Um, I think being comedy, it makes the sad, you can appreciate them more in a way because you've got that balance. So like juxtapose as well, because they are chronological diary entries. And obviously, as you can imagine, 
every day is different in the hospital. You yes. get a really, really funny part, like quite like a short part. And then you'd get like a, an entry that was a couple of pages. It'd be like a really traumatic experience. So it just sort of, I don't know, it just makes you realize the realities of working in hospital and how it is so different to anything you can ever imagine and everyone else's day jobs that aren't working in the hospital as well. Yeah. And they work really hard, don't they? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I knew that anyway, but this is just another level of realization. So he's written a few more books in the same line, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Are you planning to read those or have you read them? I have read. So he did a Christmas version of this, which is called Twas the Night Shift Before Christmas, ah. which was an amazing title. And, um, it's really, it's quite small. So it's basically because he had so many entries, he didn't put the Christmas ones in as much. And so that one is like a collection of when he did six years working Christmas day and over the festive period. And he also put in some of the more like not nitty gritty is the wrong word, but he sort of in his like foreword, he says that it is a mixture of Christmas ones and entries that the editor took out because they thought they were too much. So it is like a good mix between that. So it's 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 quite a lot shorter. And I read that in like a day. And, you yeah. know, it is, it is funny because it's a festive period. I feel like you don't realise that life goes on in the hospital and in the NHS, but it's just the craziest stuff that people get up to in the festive yeah. period. It's, it's, it's just as good, I think. Of course, when you're in hospital, as a as a patient or as a visitor you're traumatized by whatever the experience is but of course all the doctors and nurses that it's just their life isn't it yeah holidays yeah. and birthdays and things <laughs> christmas on a on a ward has definitely sounded very different to christmas at home <laughs> so you've chosen apart from the the book um to read so can you introduce that reading to us so it's when dr k is on his third post as a senior house officer because the book sort of goes up on the post within the post that he does before he you know qualifies Um, and these entries are a mix of humor the realities of what being a doctor entails in the nhs and a particularly memorable chat between fellow doctors that i really think you you guys are going to (laughs) enjoy brilliant okay we'll listen to that now monday 12th of february prescribing a morning after pill in a and d the patient says i slept with three guys last night will one pill be enough Thursday, 22nd of February. Spent the morning going through three months of bank statements with the mortgage broker so he can assess our expenditure. You don't go out much, do you? He says, totting it up. For once, I'm grateful for my job. We wouldn't have saved enough for a deposit if I was allowed the normal social life of someone in their late 20s. It's reasonably depressing looking at where the money goes. A lot of coffee, a lot of petrol lot of takeaway pizza, necessities and practicalities. Not much in the way of fun or extracurricular frippery. No pubs, restaurants, cinemas or holidays. Hang on, what's that? There we go. Theatre tickets. Shortly followed by a payment to a florist after bailing on H at the last moment. Depressingly, it happens frequently enough that I can't even remember the particular emergency or staffing crisis on that occasion. Wednesday, 28th of February. In Gynae Clinic, I go online to look up some management guidelines for a patient. The Trust's IT department has blocked the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology website and classified it as pornography. Thursday, 15th of March. I ask a patient in antenatal clinic how many weeks she's now. There's a long pause. Cogs turn. 
A camera slowly pans across a wasteland. Maths isn't everyone's strong point, but I'm after the number between 6 and 40 that people must constantly ask her about. Finally. In total? Yes, in total. God, I couldn't even tell you in months. Has she got amnesia? Is she a clone of another woman? Currently being held prisoner in an evil science fiction villain's lair? I start to ask her when her last period was, and she interrupts. Well, I'm 32 in June, so that's got to be more than a thousand weeks. Christ. Thursday, 22nd of March. Idea for Dragon's Den. A bleep with a snooze button. Monday, 14th of May. In the doctor's mess, my friend Zach, currently working in orthopaedics, tells me that he's always muddling the words shoulder and elbow in his mind and he has to really concentrate before using either term. Before I've time to process this and what it could mean for the next patient, an intensive care registrar joins in from the next sofa. Since childhood, she's always malapropped the words coma and cocoon. The more she tries to remember which is which, the more her mind convinces her she's got it the wrong way round. She shows us a piece of paper in her wallet that reads cocoon equals insect, coma equals patient. This, we hear, helps prevent the admittedly hilarious scenario of sitting down an inconsolable relative to break the news that their husband is in a cocoon. What did you learn or what surprised you most when you're reflecting back on the book for today? Just the lack of support for junior doctors out there and the realities of training as a junior doctor. And, you know, there's a massive part of it. You're saying that you do dedicate a lot of your life before you reach the top. And I think a theme of this book is that he sort of reassures himself with every new post and every new step towards the top that he's doing the right thing and it will be worth it for the payoff. But you just sort of, I didn't realise how many steps there were to get to the top and, you know, the different, the different roles and things like that. That was really interesting from like a practical point of view. And um, I think just you will never get over how weird people's injuries are. And it is quite funny to hear the stuff that he dealt with. And because it's nonfiction, it's all true. And you're just like, this can't be right. Like this has to be made up, but it's true. And it's horrific, but it's just, if you, if you think you're weird, you're just not compared to the stuff that people are doing out there. You're honestly normal. Whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to, I'm going feel like I'm going to say it on the show, but once you read it, you'll be like, well, that's what she's referring to. Yeah. Do you think jobs have that same sort of hierarchy or that same level of bizarreness? No, I reckon this must be one of the only jobs where you see, you know, the the amount of just people from different backgrounds. It's just like an eclectic mix, just like the human population, isn't it? So you just see everyone and anyone and it's crazy. It's like a microcosm of British society. But yeah, yeah. so it definitely is interesting. Yeah. And, and frightening. And, and frightening when you realise just what goes through people's heads before they do things you're just like wow okay not a lot clearly yes not a lot so it's quite political so I was quite surprised at how political it was it is I think you know it is interesting because it is between 2004 and 2010 and I mean I the situation's just got worse if I'm honest so it is quite interesting to compare it then and now and yeah it does go into the politics of it and you know it is as much a the patient experience and his experience from the NHS and like the support that he got 
through the funding and through politics. He wrote an open letter to the Secretary of State for Health at the end of this. And obviously, it was a different Secretary of State of Health who is at the moment. So it was just interesting to see that not much has changed, sadly, over the course of the years. And uh, yeah, the end is quite sad um, because it is about why he being a doctor and also you know it's like an afterword like how he thinks it would change in the future and you know it is 10 years old and not much has changed so it is interesting I think to compare them and now looking back and because it was published in 2017 but it was mm-hmm. written sort of 10 years before that and now of course we're another sort of six years further on and and a, and a pandemic as well so completely bonkers so read this book if you want what what are the main tropes oh I think like a really gripping nonfiction, but it's also quite like a bite-sized read because it's all short diary entries. I think it's good for getting out of a reading slump. Definitely helped me get out of my reading slump. I think everyone should read it, but obviously if you're interested in medicine and the NHS, you will love it even more. But I think lots of my friends and family members have read it without any interest and have loved it as well. And also a good TV adaptation to watch afterwards, I think. Ah, yes. So what did you think of the television programme? I loved it. Obviously, I watched it first, so it was a bit biased, but yes. I really love Ben Wisher. So he is, he plays Adam, and I think he's really great in it. And it's not chronological like the book, but, you know, if you've read the book, you can sort of tell which patients represent which diary entry. They, they also introduce a new character called Shruti, who is another junior doctor, and she sort of covers a different side of it and, like, the practical side of training and Again, the lack of support for junior doctors. I think that's a nice new angle that they've brought in. So she is not in the book, but, you know, I guess she re- she represents, again, a microcosm of a set of junior doctors that are undergoing the stress. I think her story is a good one to tell and it does represent what's happening as well. And it's also represented in the book. Of course, yeah, I think yeah. putting it in like one singular character really brings everything together. I really like the fact that you've watched it on telly and it inspired you to read the book. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> yeah, the book is a different dimension altogether, isn't it? It is, yeah. I just I think they go really well together as a pairing. And I think, you know, they're just great. You can watch it all and read it all in about a week and be satisfied, I think. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> great recommendation. Thanks very much, Tilly. <laughs> Thank you. Indeed. And so uh, the the book is, this is going to hurt uh, The Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor by uh, Adam Kay. And it's published by Picador. Uh, It was originally published in 2017, as we've heard, and has won a whole host of awards since its release, particularly from booksellers. And so that's always been a firm favourite with readers. Now, the awards include Blackwell's debut book of the year, uh, Books Are My Bag, non-fiction book of the year, and shortlisted for the Blackwell's book of the year and the British Book Awards non-fiction narrative book of the year. So it's a whole clutch there. It's rejoined the top 10 bestseller list recently following the TV programme, as mentioned by Tilly, and it really is a great choice. The Voice. Of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. Thank you for joining Turning Pages on River Radio, your book programme. Every week we look at different themes to introduce books that aren't necessarily on the bestseller list at the moment, but are still great reads. So Julian, what's our theme going to be today? 
Well, I'm sure it won't be hard for you to guess because it's Jubilee week. Of and course. so <laughs> we thought we'd do something about the Jubilee and our fantastic, lovely queen. Uh, and being the week, the whole nation is in the celebratory mood. There are cake feasts and there's going to be street parties galore. It's going to be fantastic. So how could we not have a program um, that doesn't mention this once-in-a-lifetime um, event, if not a unique historic occasion of celebrating the Queen's 70 years of reign to date. Yes, it's, it yeah. is amazing, isn't it? Well it done. Is. Well done, Queen Elizabeth II. So, Julian, do you have a royal story? Well, I do actually, Heather. I do indeed. I have met the Queen and it was back in 1979 when I was a student at King's College in London. And it was the year, uh, it was 150th anniversary of uh, King's College, the founding of King's College. And for some reason, I don't know why, I was selected to and invited to the reception that the Queen was coming. There was a whole things going on. And uh, not 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 all the students, of course, it, we couldn't have all the students no. there. But of course, we had the chance that we had everybody there. And I remember I was in the in in the uh, in the in, in the great hall and waiting, we line, uh, in, uh, lining up, and I had my undergrad gown on. And uh, was, the Queen was coming in, and she was escorted um, <clears throat> uh, by the Chancellor, and she was stopping. And I was sort of looking around a little bit and seeing anyone. She seemed a little distant, uh, a little distant away. Mm. So you know, and then suddenly I. Uh, realised there was a lady standing in front of me and it was the Queen. Oh, wow! I know. And, of course, I, I, I remembered my Your Majesty and Mom business. And, and she said, oh, and what are you doing? What are you studying here? So that was my, my, my brief moment with the Queen. <laughs> That's marvellous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I have, the invi- I have the invitation card somewhere around. I, I, I can't, I oh, can't remember. Oh, you should frame it and stick yes, it in I the should, loo yes. or something. Yes. Well, it's very exciting. So we're going to start this whole um, series off, or this sort of section of the programme, with a poem from our regular uh, poet, Mike Burton, uh, also known as the casual poet, who's provided a suitably patriotic poem for us. So let's listen. Your Majesty. I don't know if you'll read this, but that's not why I wrote to you. I just wanted to say thanks a lot for everything you do. You've been Queen for such a long time, and I hope you get to sit down. Especially when there's a fly past, they come so close to the ground. In a world that's topsy-turvy, You have always been our queen, steadfast and wonderful and amazing, and calm it always seems. Despite the trauma in your life, and yes, I'm sorry that Philip has gone, the rock that was your husband and one to always depend on, I am your faithful servant. Please take care of yourself. Three cheers for you, Elizabeth. We raise a glass to your health, Your Majesty. Oh, 
Well, that was lovely, wasn't it? It was. It was absolutely charming. Yes, I, yes, I, I felt that I should have really leapt to my feet, really. <laughs> you mean you hadn't? <laughs> <laughs> but a bit cramped in the studio. <laughs> yes. Anyway, perhaps these celebrations may encourage us all to read more about the Queen and the royal family. So to start with, I thought we could just look at some biographies of the royal family, which are numerous, as you can imagine. But we've taken uh, a selection of our top picks. Yes, we have indeed. And 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 uh, to kick us off with this one, we've got The Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II by Robert Hardman, and it's published by Macmillan. Now, finding a really, really good biography of the Queen is very difficult, um, mostly because she is naturally self-effacing, but uh, also the sources who are close to her remain exceptionally cautious in what they say, and they don't give anything away, really. And many of the, the, the better books um, are now quite old and been published a number of years ago. The virtue of this one is that it's the most recent, of course. And if you want to know where the crown went wrong, <laughs> then we should uh, go to this book as Mr. Hardman is happy to oblige. So, and I thought, let's listen to a short extract from the beginning of the book. Excellent. Let's do that. Even for a Nobel Prize winning leader of the free world, this would be one of the great nights of his life. Back in his suite at Buckingham Palace, Barack Obama simply wanted to savour the moment. He had just been honoured with a state banquet given by Queen Elizabeth II. It wasn't the Midas-like display of George IV's gold and silver tableware collection or the quality of the Eschazeau Grand Cru 1990 Romanet Conti which had made this such an exceptional occasion. It was the rapport he had formed with a host who could talk with such authority about so many of his predecessors. Obama had been enjoying himself so much that the Queen had eventually taken the Chancellor of the Exchequer to one side to ask if he might, very discreetly, let the President know that it was bedtime. I just said, yes ma'am, George Osborne recalls. I could see Obama with the drink in hand, and I was thinking, what do I do? I couldn't just interrupt and say, oh, the Queen wants you to go to bed. Fortunately, he was saved by the Queen's private secretary, who gently nudged proceedings to a close. Still buzzing, the President summoned his two closest aides for a modest after-party in the Belgian suite, where the Queen accommodates her state visitors. There was work to do. The following day, Obama would become the first US president in history to address both houses of parliament in the exalted setting of Westminster Hall. While the first lady was getting ready for bed in the Orléans bedroom, the president and his advisers sat in the sitting room, known as the 18th century room, adding some final touches to the big speech. Obama wanted to offer a broad defence of Western values, his senior aide and chief speechwriter Ben Rhodes recorded afterwards. But first he, like anyone who had just had dinner at Buckingham Palace, wanted to talk about his evening. Above all, the President wanted to talk about his host. I really love the Queen, Obama mused. She's just like Toot, my grandmother. Courteous, straightforward, all about what she thinks. She doesn't suffer fools. At which point there was an interruption. It was the palace butler bringing news of an intruder. Mr President, pardon me, whispered the man in the tailcoat. There is a mouse. Without blinking, the President replied, don't tell the first lady. The butler assured him that all would be done to catch the unwanted guest. Just don't tell the first lady, Obama repeated. 
as Rhodes recalls, he didn't care except for the fact that Michelle Obama was terrified of mice. In fact, the mouse hunt only added to the sumptuously surreal atmosphere. Maybe it really is a dying empire, Rhodes suggested. Obama disagreed. No, they've still got a lot going on. Did you see the bling on the Queen? As he surveyed the walls of the 18th century room, taking in Gainsborough's Diana and Ection, a couple of Canalettos, and Zafani's portrait of America's old foe, George III, the permanence of monarchy versus the fleeting nature of 21st century politics started to sink in. I'm just a few years away from being in the state senate, the president joked, and living in a condo. Looking back a decade later, Rhodes remembers another amusing detail from the Obama stay at Buckingham Palace. It was the only presidential guest quarters the couple ever encountered anywhere in the world without an ensuite bathroom. There was just an Edwardian toilet in a compartment off the bedroom. Thanks to the antiquated layout of the palace, state visitors were expected to nip across the corridor to clean their teeth in a bathroom which, owing to its vintage, contained a bath but no shower. It didn't bother him, says Rhodes, but he said, it's kind of weird, it's over there. Bundled off to bed early in a house with vermin and a walk to the bathroom, Obama might have been forgiven for viewing his stay at the palace as something of a disappointment. In fact, the experience reinforced his regard for one of the most impressive world leaders he encountered in his entire presidency. The two heads of state had first been introduced two years before, when the Queen and Michelle Obama bonded over a chat about sore feet and long receptions. Just two tired ladies oppressed by our shoes, as the First Lady put it later. That was the first of many meetings. Michelle Obama would write fondly in her memoirs of Our Friend the Queen, the woman who reminded Barack of his no-nonsense grandmother, and who taught the First Lady a lesson for life. Over the course of many visits, she showed me that humanity is more important than protocol or formality. Oh, that was excellent. <laughs> I like the idea of the heads of state of other countries having to trot across the corridor to, to go and brush their teeth. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and the fact that the Queen has mice as well in, the, in, in her oh, house. Yes. So we all don't feel bad if we have one ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the best uh, recent royal biography is not about the Queen at all. It is Mom Darling, 99 Glimpses of Prince. Princess Margaret by Craig Brown and published by Fourth Estate. Now, this takes a sideways look at the monarch through her errant sister. And I've got to say, Princess Margaret was a bit of an errant sister, wasn't she? Mm, She was. Um, So Brown uses 99 snapshots of Margaret's life to explore her Baroque eccentricities. Uh, It's a great book, well recommended. Good. It sounds good. And hot on the heels, we have um, the Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil by Tina Brown, and that's published by Century. Now, if royal gossip is your thing, then Brown provides it by the bucket load. Um, And this is a follow-up to the Diana Chronicles. Um, There's no earth-shattering revelations in it, but as the Times Review said, and it's a really... (laughs) Really rather a good review. The book is clever, well-informed and disgustingly entertaining. <laughs> I think that's what we're after nowadays, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. <laughs> 
And I've got to say that there's a great shout out for Giles Brandreth, who I just adore. I think he's a great uh, author and raconteur. Yes. And of course, he was big mates with Prince Philip. So uh, he's written Philip, The Final Portrait, uh, published by Coronet. And this biography of her husband allows readers another sideways look at the monarch. And um, it's an informal style to the portrait and great fun. Yeah, I, it, it does, and I think that's and that's quite nice to have those sort of, uh, sort of like a bookend, um, uh, her sister and her husband, yes, um, yes. on uh, uh, either side of her life. There, I think that's it. And also, we mustn't forget the power of fiction to provide a view of the Queen, and this comes along in the Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, which is uh, published by Faber and Faber, and it came out originally in two thousand and eight. Now, as the nation gets into its stride to celebrate Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee tomorrow, I. Th- thought I'd like to revisit it, which is one of my favourite books, and it's where we discover that though Her Majesty always puts the nation first and herself last, we witness the moment when she finds herself with an opportunity that will allow her to have a little bit of me time, the moment when Her Majesty becomes the Uncommon Reader. The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett. At Windsor, it was the evening of the state banquet, and as the President of France took his place beside Her Majesty, the Queen family formed up behind, and the procession slowly moved off and threw into the Waterloo chamber. "'Now that I have you to myself,' said the Queen, smiling to left and right as they glided through the glittering throng, "'I've been longing to ask you about the writer Jean Genet.' "'Ah,' said the President, "'we!' The Marseillaise and the National Anthem made for a pause in the proceedings, but when they had taken their seats, Her Majesty turned to the President and resumed. Homosexual and jailbird, was he nevertheless as bad as he was painted? Or more to the point, and she took up her soup spoon, was he as good? Unbriefed on the subject of the glabrous playwright and novelist, the President looked wildly about for his Minister of Culture, but she was being addressed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Jean Genet, said the Queen again, helpfully. Vous le connaissez? Bien sûr, said the President. Il m'intéresse, said the Queen. Vraiment? The President put down his spoon. It was going to be a long evening. <clears throat> it was the dog's fault. They were snobs, and ordinarily, having been in the garden, would have gone up the front steps, where a footman generally opened them the door. Today, though, for some reason, they careered along the terrace, barking their heads off, and scampered down the steps again, and round the end, along the side of the house, where she could hear them yapping at something in one of the yards. It was the City of Westminster Travelling Library, a large removal-like van parked next to the bins outside one of the kitchen doors. This wasn't a part of the palace she saw much of, and she had certainly never seen the library park there before, nor presumably had the dogs, hence the din. So having failed in her attempt to calm them down, she went up the little steps of the van in order to apologise. The driver was sitting with his back to her, sticking a label on a book, and the only seeming borrower, a thin ginger-haired boy in white overalls, crouched in the aisle, reading. Neither of them took any notice of the new arrival, so she coughed and said, I'm sorry about this awful racket. Whereupon the driver got up so suddenly, he banged his head on the reference section, and the boy in the aisle scrambled to his feet and upset photography and fashion. 
She put her head out of the door. Shut up this minute, you silly creatures, which, as had been the move's intention, gave the driver librarian time to compose himself and the boy to pick up the books. One has never seen you here before, Mr. Hutchings, Your Majesty. Every Wednesday, ma'am. Really? I never knew that. Have you come far? Only from Westminster, ma'am. And you are? Norman, ma'am. Seekins. And where do you work? In the kitchens, ma'am. Oh, do you have much time for reading? Not really, ma'am. I'm the same, though now that one is here, I suppose one ought to borrow a book. <laughs> Which I think is a lovely introduction. Yes. And so and so from this encounter, the Queen decides uh, that she should take up reading for pleasure, something that she's not done before, um, because reading had basically been confined almost exclusively to the government papers delivered daily to her uh, in the red box. Now, the Queen takes up her new hobby with increasing enthusiasm, bordering on obsession, which doesn't really go down well with her advisors, and certainly not with the Prime Minister's private secretary, especially after the Queen tries to expand the Prime Minister's reading repertoire by sending books uh, and advice, resulting in a rather fruity (laughs) retort from the private secretary. And as you may imagine, along the way, the late, much-loved Prince Philip makes his mark with believably withering one-liners, which only Prince Philip could deliver. Now, and as for the corgis, um, who were responsible for the Queen's new hobby in the first place, well, they're, they're, they've taken a great dislike to the books because um, they're viewing them with increasing jealousy because the Queen is now devoting more and more time to reading and not to them. And so they contrive to make off with as many copies as they can to shred joyously in some corner of the palace. Now, the Queen's appetite for literature is expansive as she delves into Thomas Hardy, Ivy Compton Burnett, Proust, Nancy Mitford, the Brontes, Dickens, Shakespeare, up to Lauren Bacall and Kazuo Ishiguro, Ian McEwen, Vikram Seth and countless others. And along the way, Her Majesty proves adept as a critic uh, by telling Henry James to get on with it and to Proust, oh, do pull your socks up. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd like to think that Her Majesty uh, will be adding the 70 books that had recently been chosen, one for each uh, year of her reign, um, that were selected, um, written by authors throughout the Commonwealth, to mark her amazing life and service. And I hope she adds uh, the lists um, and, and will read them. And maybe, just maybe, when her busy weekend is over on Sunday, the Queen will return home to Windsor and she'll kick off her shoes curl up on the sofa, her favourite cocktail to hand, which is a gin and a bonnet. Deborah, you need to know that, Deborah, in the programme before. Mm -hmm. Um, And the dog's there to warm her feet and she'll have a well-earned few hours of queen time to read to her heart's content. If she's not listening to River Radio turning pages. uh, I I, I, I do believe that she she blocks um, 11 o'clock every Wednesday (sighs) and uh, she'll have coffee and biscuits, but nobody is to disturb her. She's tuned in. Of course, she's she's one of our local listeners. She's just down the road in Windsor, of course. She is indeed. Yes. Anyway, just to to recap, it is available. It's a fantastic book. It's The Uncommon Reader by um, Alan Bennett, published by Faber and Faber and can be bought from your local bookshop. 
Yes, fantastic. And of course, we mustn't forget the seemingly mountain of offerings for children that are being published to help celebrate the Platinum Exactly. And we've chosen the Michael Mopolgo's latest book, which has been published this week, called There Once Is a Queen. So this book from our nation's favourite storyteller is a poetic celebration of our Queen and longest reigning monarch with beautifully illustrated uh, watercolours by acclaimed artist Michael Foreman. And it's been created in partnership with the Jubilee Pageant Committee. So beginning with the Queen as a little girl planting an oak tree with her father, their Once is a Queen follows Queen Elizabeth's incredible story in a way that will bring this historic reign vividly to life for readers big and small around the globe. Her reign, obviously as the longest serving female monarch in history, has seen her stand steadfast through triumph and tribulation and through the monumental changes that of course have shaped our world. So this remarkable queen has remained devoted to crown and to and to country, and to a corgi or two. So it's an exquisite gift book and commemoration of the Platinum Jubilee. And it marks a unique moment in our shared history. And I think it'll be a treasured keepsake for generations to come. I think it certainly will. And talking of treasured keepsake, um, The Queen, 70 Glorious Years, is the official souvenir publication from the Royal Collection Trust, which celebrates the Platinum Jubilee of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth through 70 photographs chosen to illustrate memorable events in the reign of Britain's longest-serving monarch. Now, it's a delightfully informal um, set of family photographs of the Queen as a young girl, um, as a young wife and mother, on holiday and enjoying the company of her children and dogs and are joined um, by more formal um, images illustrating her official life um, on grand state occasions such as the coronation, state opening of parliament and trooping of the colour and not to mention her memorable encounter with James Bond and her dramatic arrival at the opening ceremony marking the 2010 London Olympics. Of course, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that was fantastic (laughs) and I love seeing that. Slip uh, that snippet when she's walking down the corridor with uh, James Bond. (laughs) Now, each photograph is accompanied by a resonant um, quotation from speeches given by the Queen over the years from her wartime children's hour radio broadcast at the age of 13 and her first televised Christmas Day broadcast, which was in 1957, to her speeches welcoming Commonwealth leaders and US presidents to Buckingham Palace, or responding to the warm hospitality extended when she and Philip went, um, Prince Philip went on stage visits to India, uh, to Asia. Remember, she went to um, Thailand to to visit the the king there. Uh, Australia, New Zealand and the Caribbean. Um, Love of the family, fondness of animals and a keen sense of um, humour and a staunch belief in the Commonwealth um, as a force for good in the world and a gratitude to all the people around the world who go out of their way to help their communities. Uh, These are among the themes that come across from the photographic journey through a remarkable life of duty and service of a remarkable lady indeed. Absolutely. And of course, our poet laureate, Simon Armitage, also honours the occasion with a specially written poem called Queenhood, a poem for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is published in a special edition, a signed limited uh, pamphlet by Faber and Faber to be kept and cherished as a souvenir of this majestic moment. So all those books will be available in bookshops. Indeed, yes, and I think it's officially published tomorrow, I think. Ah, Um, Yes, yes, I think yes, um, indeed. 
So one more thing, we're racing to the end. So very quickly, we've just had a little look at the Sunday Times bestseller list. And uh, The Man Who Died Twice by Richard Osman is there. The Wim Hof Method by Wim Hof is there. We've discussed those previously. Yes, indeed. And there's all, and what else is there? Well, sleep sells, uh, and we all do it, uh, and most of us wish we do a lot more. So it makes sense that Russell uh, Foster's lifetime on the science behind our body clock has entered the list at number two in this uh, first week of the nonfiction titles. Oh, that sounds good. Mm. Lessons on, in the fiction... Uh, Lessons on Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus is in the top spot in its seventh week in the fiction charts. It looks set to be the book of the summer and possibly it could be challenged perhaps by Joanna Quinn's The Whalebone Theatre, which Sunday Times journalist Indian Knight adores. She describes it as pure heaven from first word to last. It has you hooting with laughter one minute and feeling absolutely flawed the next. An absolute treat of a book to read and reread. Good, yes. Uh, well, the books we've been recommending um, uh, start off with uh, Marcus Rashford and Carl Anker, You Are a Champion, published by Macmillan Children's Books. This is Going to Hurt, The Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor by Adam Kay, is published by Picador. Queen of Our Time, The Life of Elizabeth II by Robert Hardman, published by Macmillan. Mom Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown, published by Fourth Estate. The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil by Tina Brown, published by Century. We've got Philip, The Final Portrait by Giles Brandreth, published by Coronet. And we have The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, published by Faber and Faber. Uh, Michael Morpurgo, There Once is a Queen. I don't like the grammar on that. That just no. seems a bit bizarre. <laughs> anyway, Michael Morpurgo's There Once is a Queen, HarperCollins Children's Books. The Queen, 70 Glorious Years from the Royal Collection Trust. And Queenhood, a poem for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, uh, published by Faber and Faber. And Russell Foster's Lifetime, published by Penguin. And Lessons on Chemistry by Bunny Garmus, published by Doubleday. And finally, Joanna Quinn's The Whalebone Theatre, published by Fig Tree. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for listening to Turning Pages today on River Radio. Do tell your friends. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. And in fact, Kate reminded me, um, one of our listeners, that um, S.J. Bennett does a marvellous series about the Queen as she's a detective. And her latest book is A Three Dog Problem. Oh, Um, right. And the Queen. As opposed to a three pipe problem. Exactly. Yes, Sherlock Holmes. Three dog problem. I like that one. Yeah. Great title. And the Queen investigates a murder at Buckingham Palace. I see. That sounds very good. Uh, If you want to listen to our radio programme again, it has never been easier. You can just tune into River Radio on almost any internet connected device or smart speaker. And of course, there are a host of great programmes you can listen to, uh, both music and talk focused. We're available every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And of course, if you do want to catch up on any past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again directly, either as your new uh, normal podcast, just search for Turning Pages on River Radio, 
or of course you can go onto our website www.river.radio and turning pages is also available in listen again and if you do listen to our podcast do like us because it really helps it does indeed it gets us uh, gets us in the rankings absolutely <laughs> next week we'll begin to be joined by local author serena delastic who will be discussing her children's book witchy poos and the covid fairy and our topic for discussion is the sea is it not <laughs> It is. It will be the sea next week. We'll be all at sea. Yes, yes. Well, let's hope in a, not. In a pea green boat. <laughs> oh, there's an idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So do carry on listening. Next up at one o'clock, we've got Let's Do Business with Sophie and Fiona. But for now, we'd like to say goodbye and thank you for listening. Goodbye and see you next week or listen to you next week. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one... ...that stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one... One that's made entirely out of syrup.